All right, so we're looking at question 28 in the New City Catechism. And as always, we're going to start with uh, just learning more about it and then breaking off into small groups and then discussing it more. And because a lot of people are out of town, your small group might look a little different. We'll just kind of uh, have, have a... And, but I think it's what's good is it's still going to be a small group. So, so you, you'll still get to like have um, good, good conversations and discussions with your leader, so that's good. So let's um, first read the question and the answer, okay? So question 28, uh, let's read the question out loud. Ready, set, go. What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? Hmm. What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? Now, here's the, the short answer that you're going to be trying to memorize and try to unpack today. Let's read the answer together. Ready, set, go. They will be cast out from the presence of God into hell to be justly punished forever. And, and if you're like me, the word that stands out there the most is the word hell, right? So, um, we're going to try to come to a better understanding of, of the biblical teaching about hell and then break you off into small groups today. And I think the first thing we ought to say about hell is it's difficult to talk about, right? It is. And um, much more difficult to share with a non-Christian friend. Okay? Um, and that's understandable. Um, I don't think we should have this prideful attitude about hell like some people do. Some people love talking to people about hell. And I think there's something kind of strange about that. Um, you shouldn't love the idea of hell in the sense that, you know, you should want to go and tell people you're going to hell, you're going to hell. You're... Right? That's, that's not how Jesus approached this topic of hell. That's missing the point. Uh, but there is a compassionate way and a truthful way uh, to share about this very important teaching in the Bible. Okay? And all of us, right, have people in our um, influence, within our influence, who don't know Christ. Uh, friends, family members, or neighbors, or um, teachers. Um, and, and, of course, we would rather not think that they might end up in hell. Um, but that kind of discomfort shouldn't lead us to not wrestle with this and come to, you know, uh, a better understanding of how we can share it. Uh, with them. So here's how I want to do this. Um, there are several kind of questions in you know, succession I want to address, and then you break off into small, small groups and then hash those out some more. And the first question is this, does the Bible actually teach this? And um, did Jesus actually talk about hell? Okay, does the Bible talk about it? Did Jesus talk about it? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. And in fact, um, Jesus is the one who talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, entire Bible. Uh, and I want to give you two examples, and you can jot these down and you can look it up later. Uh, one reference, one scripture reference is in Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 to 42. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, that's one. And then Mark chapter 9, verses 47 to 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye 
than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There's two. And then there's also the story of um, rich man, the rich man and, and Lazarus. Remember that? Um, and there you, you notice the rich man is experiencing hell in a conscious way, in a very real way. It's not some symbolic thing and it's not just some abstract idea. He's actually experiencing it physically. So there's real suffering and uh, real consequences. So the, the, the first thing that I want you guys to come to grips with is Jesus taught about hell, okay? Yes, he did, right? There's no doubt, no mistake about that. So um, you want to move beyond this naive idea that Jesus is too loving to believe in something like hell or even teach about hell. Um, he did it more than anyone else. Uh, of course, we know him to be loving, um, compassionate, right? kind, patient, and gentle. But somehow that did not um, exclude from his teaching the teaching about hell. So that means, right, the two can somehow come together. And we're going to get to that later on. But for now, here's what I want you to understand. The Bible teaches it. Okay? The Bible teaches it, and Jesus taught it as well. Okay? And that can lead us to the second question, and that is, okay, granted it's in the Bible, and Jesus talked about it, but is it, why is this necessary? Why is hell necessary? And is not hell too extreme form of a punishment? Okay. And this is where we have to talk about this thing called sin. Okay. Uh, because sin is what, according to the Bible, makes hell necessary. Okay. Now, here's how one um, other pastor put it. Quote, in some ways, Hell is the outworking of what we as sinful people have always wanted. Autonomy and independence from God. In hell, we are therefore cut off from God and from everything that God is. So in hell, there's no love, there's no friendship, there's no joy, there's no rest. Because those are all things that exist only where God is present. Um, now, this is, this, this is not to say God is somehow absent from hell, but God is present in hell only in, in the form of justice. His justice is present in hell. His wrath against sin, anger against sin is present in hell. But what's not present in hell is His forgiveness, His mercy, grace, right, um, and kindness. And if somebody were to come along and say, you know, I don't want to do any, I, want to, I don't want to have anything to do with God and all the good things about God, all the good gifts of God, you know, what would you expect? Hell is what you would expect. The absence of all of these beautiful attributes of God. Okay. Um, so, to take this pastor's point, what he's saying here is, you want to avoid hell. Well, why? Well, it's because it's horrible. Uh, well, that means you want something beautiful. You want to hold on to the beautiful. Well, to, do, to, to have that, to have anything beautiful, you have to hold on to the source of all beauty, source of all good, and that's God. Okay? But what if people choose to be separated from Him? Well, then, then you ch you're choosing to be separated from the, the, all the beautiful gifts of this life and the next. Because apart from God, um, your, only, your only obsession... You know, 
is going to be with yourself. If you're not pursuing the glory of God, you're pursuing your own glory. And that's ugly, right? Selfishness is ugly. Pridefulness is ugly. When someone is obsessed with their own glory, that's ugly. Uh, and that's what you end up with for eternity. And so C.S. Lewis put it like this. He says, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives in the deadly, serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Okay, so imagine you being roommates with someone who only cares about himself or herself for eternity. And it's not just one roommate, it's a house full of those such people. Wouldn't that feel like hell? And that's exactly what hell is, according to, to Lewis. People who have pursued this self-importance rather than the glory of God, and, and they got what they wanted. Um, so the point here for now is, there's something very logical about the doctrine of hell. Logically necessary. Uh, what, what are people to get if they really want nothing to do with God, the source of all good? What, what, what should they expect? Something like hell is what they should expect. There's something logical about that. Um, before it disturbs you or makes you uncomfortable, it's worth noticing that. Uh, another way to put it is, is like this. Um, if you want to have nothing to do with the sun, sun in the sky, right? if you want nothing to do with the sun, then you'll have nothing but blistering winters and shivering cold, that's all you would get, right? That's logical, right? That's not a mean thing to say, that's just kind of a logical thing to say. Uh, you will freeze to death, right? Uh, if you were to run from the sun. Um, so so that's, the, that's the necessity question, why is it necessary? Now that could lead then to the next question some of you might be asking, and I hope you're asking, what do I tell my friends who's still offended by this logic, okay? I get this logic, but it's offensive. I don't like it. Um, and I still think hell is unfair. Unfair. Um, and I'm just going to leave you with a, a simple thought here, and, and I want you guys to hash this out more with your small group leader, okay? Ask your friend, or ask yourself this. Um, consider how, in a different country, uh, how different their justice system looks. So, I don't know if you knew this, but did you know that in Singapore, if you sell a piece of gum on the street, um, you can get up to two years in jail. Two years in jail and $100,000 in fine. And if you were to connect, right, on your device, if you were to connect onto someone else's Wi-Fi, that's not yours, let's say your neighbor's Wi-Fi or something like that, uh, you can get up to three years in jail, plus $10,000 in fine, okay? And here's, here's one that's kind of weird. If you walk around in your own home naked, and let's say somebody catches you because you had the curtains open, you can get a $2,000 fine and up to three months in jail for just being in your own home, not wearing any clothes, okay? Now, do you think that's fair? Okay. Well, no? Okay. So, would you say then that the American system of justice is better than the Singaporean? 
and they need to catch up to where we are. We need to impose on them our justice system. Now, most of your friends, when they hear that, they will say, oh, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we need to impose on them our, value, our Western values, you know, and, and make Easterners think like Westerners. That's not, oh, that's not what Because that's offensive if you do that, right? It's very culturally, like, incorrect, right? Um, well, well, then, what are you saying? What are you saying? Are you saying you, you, you individually, personally, you know better about how justice should be, you know, operating than the people of Singapore. Oh no, I'm not saying that either. Not, that's usually their response. And 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 the point I'm trying to illustrate there is, well, then why would you say that you know better than God about His justice system by calling His system unfair? Right? If if you were to give that much benefit of the doubt or that much leeway to some other human being living halfway across the globe. Um, why, why, why be so surprised when this almighty God, God of the universe, uh, operates differently, thinks in a way that is not in a way consistent with our thoughts? Right? Why would that be shocking? Isn't that what we would expect? Okay. Uh, and, and why should we not give him all the more respect? Because he is God and because he is infinitely wise. Okay. So the question of fairness assumes what? God has to think like me. Um, God has to abide with my sense of fairness rather than the other way around. Right? He has to submit to my sensitivity, my comfort levels, rather than me submitting to him and his sense of justice. And that's kind of backwards, isn't it? Right? it it's worse than saying Singaporeans have to think like Americans. That's, it's even worse than that. God has to think like I think. It's infinitely more prideful and, and insensitive in that way. Now, here's the last point. And, and the next, this last question is more for the Christian, and that is, how does this doctrine of hell then comfort me? Is it worth meditating on? Does it bring any comfort to my soul when I'm meditating on this, on this reality of hell? And the answer is yes, and here's how. Okay. Until we acknowledge the reality of hell, uh, we cannot truly understand uh, the meaning and value of the cross. Okay. Um, in other words, you won't grasp how deep, how wide, how great God's love is for you until you understand the reality of His righteous anger upon sin, His wrath against sin. See, God's wrath and His anger uh, is really something that stems from his, his love for His creation, which was originally very good. Right, Genesis 1 and 2, he saw that it was very good. And he loves and cares for the goodness of his creation, including us, our own well-being. So much so, that when that goodness is violated, it makes him angry. That's how much he cares. He's not indifferent. He cares deeply about how broken our world is, and how broken and fallen we are. So why, why is his wrath and anger so destructive, though? Why is it so destructive? Because hell is such, a, is such a destructive thing. It's something people suffer. Because sin is that destructive. Sin is that destructive. And God, God's means of um, destroying that destructiveness of sin is by putting it in hell. Judging it 
within the context of hell. Um, you know when, um, and I hope I'm not spoiling any movies for you, when Thanos, um, when, he, when he snapped his finger and, and destroyed half the world, right? You saw, you saw that happen in Infinity War, right? I'm sorry if I spoiled it for you. <laughs> um, at the end of Infinity War, he, he, he destroys half the world. It happened. Remember how, how sadly everyone just kind of walked out of the theater, okay? I just remember people being so sad. Their, their favorite superhero's gone, right? Not only, you know, the half of the world is gone, but Black Panther's gone, Spider-Man's gone. My favorite superhero's gone. And they walked out really sad. Well, and then comes the sequel, right? Um, Endgame. And in Endgame, what did it take um, to defeat... I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this story. What, what, does, what did it take to defeat Thanos? Right? I won't say who. Somebody... Somebody had to snap his finger to undo right, what Thanos did and destroy Thanos and all his armies. In other words, um, the, the power it took, the, the destructive power it took uh, to destroy Thanos was, was the same, same power that, that Thanos was trying to, to apply to the rest of the world. That's what it took to, to end, his, end, end his game, right? end his plans. Another snap of the finger. Right? That destructive power applied in a very controlled way to his enemy so that no friendlies would get hurt. None of, the, none of the good guys would get hurt. Point is, it took just as much destructive power to destroy that evil destructive power. Okay. Um, now, what kind of destructive power would be enough to destroy sin? Hell. That's how destructive sin is. That's how destructive sin is. In a sense, God, hell is God's destructive power against sin. His destructive power against the destructive power of sin. Now, here's how this comforts us. The good news of Jesus Christ, his gospel, is that the destructive power of God upon sin was poured out in this very controlled way upon Jesus Christ. So that those who put their faith in him, those who believe that he is the son of God on his mission to save the world, they will be saved from the destructive power of God. And they will be friendlies, God's friendlies, who don't get zapped accidentally by his destructive power. They're, they're protected, they're saved. And this power of destructive, this destructive power is, is only applied to God's enemies, his final enemy, right? Satan, sin, and death. Let's see, without a real hell, though, we can't understand the real price that Jesus paid for us. We can't understand the kind of suffering he took upon himself to save us. And you'll never understand, therefore, how much he really loved you. How much he really loved you. Okay. He didn't love you like 3,000. He loved you like 3 trillion. That's how much he's loved you. Because his, his suffering on the cross was infinite. Separating, being separated from the Father. Right? He cried on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when he experienced this separation, this agony of being torn apart from his heavenly Father.
Father. Because he was taking upon himself what we deserved. So unless you believe um, in hell and the seriousness of sin and the destructive power of sin, you will not fully understand what Jesus really consumed on the cross for you. Never really understand how much he loves you. But when you understand um, that on the cross, Jesus for us, for those who believe, consumed hell for us, that is infinitely comforting. It causes us to to worship him. Because he saved us from the most destructive power there is, the wrath of God. And he's purchased our lives with his life. And so we now belong to him. You know, like, like in that hymn we sing, um, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Right? And that's why we want to, when we meditate on this gospel, it makes us want to live for him. It makes us want to obey him.